God, use your word this morning to speak to every heart in this place. We want your agenda to be front and center for the next half hour or so. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a science fiction fan. Now, maybe it's a cliche to say that when your job was, secular job was as a software engineer, but, but I am. And, uh, and I find that I'm particularly drawn to stories that involve time travel. Now, maybe you've seen some in popular movies and such. Uh, for example, Star Trek First Contact. Captain Picard and the Enterprise have to travel to the past to stop the half-human, half-machine Borg from enslaving the human race at a time when they technologically can't stand up to them. Or how about 12 Monkeys? Bruce Willis is sent from the future to find a cure to a disease that's wiped out most of the human race. Or how about the Terminator? Arnold Schwarzenegger is a killing machine who travels back in time to kill the mother of his enemy before he's even born. Well, did you know the Bible has its own time travel story? It does, and we're going to look at it today. Now, Lance just read to us that uh, deeply profound description of who Jesus is that we find in Philippians chapter 2. And we've been looking at it the last few weeks, right? And we talked about how Jesus laid aside his kingly rights and privileges, his royal lifestyle, as it were, to come from heaven to earth, to serve us, and to live as a human. Now, Paul's perspective looks at the past, what Jesus had already done in his time, and it also looks to the future, at the response to Jesus at a time that's yet to come. But God's also provided us with a present perspective of the future by giving one man a miraculous firsthand look at the ultimate destiny of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at that in Revelation chapter 1. So you can take the study guide out of your worship folder. It's on there. Fire up your Bible app, and let's get going. Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom. And in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I returned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in the grave. Well, let's start out this morning by just answering some basic questions from the passage, okay? First, who is John? John's a disciple which the follower of Jesus. He was a first century fisherman and then one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. John wrote five books of the New Testament and he writes from a common man's point of view. 
I'd say that John was Jesus' closest friend when he was on the earth. Now, John tells us in verse 9, he's a partner in the suffering for God's kingdom. Tradition has it that he was tortured, but he was the only one of the disciples who was not killed outright for his faith. Instead, he was sent into exile on Patmos, a rocky little island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. John tells us that he was exiled for preaching and teaching about Jesus. Well, what happened to John? Well, verse 10 tells us he was worshiping on a Sunday, and probably alone since he was essentially in prison. And suddenly, he hears a voice behind him, and John is whisked into the distant future. Now, was he physically transported, or was it a vision of some kind? The fact is, it doesn't really matter. God chose us to, uh, he chose to show John these things were going to happen at a time that is still yet to come. So why is John writing? Well, the voice tells John in verse 11, write down what you're going to see and send it to seven specific churches in cities in Asia Minor. Now, who did John see? Well, John doesn't say by name, but he gives us four uh, strong hints about who it is. First, he says it was someone like the Son of Man in verse 13. Well, Son of Man is a title that Jesus used for himself throughout his ministry on earth. It's a title John would have heard many times while he was walking with Jesus. So John is saying he saw someone that looked like Jesus. Second, in verse 16, it says, A sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Now, what's that all about? Well, listen to this from Hebrews 4, and verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. In John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus and the word of God are one and the same. So it makes sense that God's word would be coming from the mouth of God's word himself, Jesus. Number three, the person says, I'm the first and the last. Jesus calls himself first and the last in Revelation 22, verse 13. He says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then finally, the person says in verse 18, I died, but I'm alive again. Now, let's see. Who do we know that died and came back to life and holds the keys of death and the grave? That can only be Jesus Christ. Now, John says that the person looked like Jesus, but he looked enhanced, right, amplified, because John's seeing the glorified Christ. John had seen Jesus as a man on the earth, and Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had an ordinary appearance in human form. We talked about that last week. But now John's seeing Jesus as he truly exists in heaven, and he's anything but ordinary. So how does John react? He doesn't go, hey, Jesus, how's it going? <laughs> he doesn't give him a big friendly hug. He doesn't say, hey, my old friend, it's so good to see you. No, John says he fell at his feet like a dead man. Why? Because he's hawking Jesus in all his glory. And for the next few minutes, I want us to take a good look at King Jesus ourselves. And I want you to see three things from John's revelation. First thing, the majesty of King Jesus invites worship. Now, at Christmas time, I know we kind of tend to get wrapped up in the baby in the manger and all that. But here, 
John is seeing King Jesus very differently with his glorious appearance intact. The natural response is to worship him, to acknowledge his power and greatness. John describes how heaven responds to King Jesus in Revelation later on in chapter 19. I'm going to read this starting in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Now that word in there is hallelujah. It's in there three times, and we've, we've sung it already, right? That's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. It's composed of two parts. Halal, which is an exhortation to praise addressed to several people, and Yah, which is a shortened form of the Hebrew word for God or the Lord. So it's translated in English as praise the Lord. Or sometimes in English you'll see it as hallelujah. It's the same word. What John saw in heaven is that the praise is of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, is absolute. When we see Jesus as he truly is, there's not going to be any denying his position or authority or royalty or power. There aren't going to be agnostics or atheists then. And his subjects gladly give him their allegiance. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. And they give him glory. Nobody's there going, hey, look at me. No, they're there to look at him. The good and perfect king. But that's the future. Which brings me to the second point. Mankind wants to steal the throne. Now, back here in the present, Jesus is still the king of the universe, but man wants to believe that he himself is the ruler of the universe. We delude ourselves into thinking we're way more important and powerful than we really are. Our hearts are selfish. We're in constant rebellion against the one true king. The Bible talks about this all over the place. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, we think we know what's best, right? We, we think we got it all figured out. But the Bible here is saying, just because something seems right, doesn't mean it is right. John chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs, meaning miracles, in their presence, they would still not believe in him. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, even many among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. What's really important to you? What people think? Or what God thinks? 2 Timothy verse four and, uh, or chapter 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And here the Bible's telling us the time's going to come when men are going to look to pacify themselves by listening to what's comfortable, not what's true. To have philosophies and teaching that justify their beliefs, not God's law to shape their beliefs. They'll want teaching based on man's ever-changing relative truth, not God's absolute truth. And you can decide for yourself whether that day's here or not yet. I heard this story about a man. He, he took his toddler with him to a basketball game, and he showed the toddler they could go anywhere in the gym except inside the lines of the basketball court. And so the little one ran around and played a little bit, but pretty quickly the child worked their way down to the floor, looked right at the man, and stuck one foot inside the line. That's the nature of all of us, child or adult. Rebellion against authority. Hey, God, I'm doing it my way. Because after all, I know best. All of us want to be large and in charge, right? We want to bump Jesus off that throne and sit down there ourselves. You know, the Christmas story involves rebellion against God, right? Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or some people would say wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I may go and worship him. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the Magi, returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 16, When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So here's King Herod, 2,000 years ago. He's ruling over Judea. And these magi show up, and they, they're from a far country, and they're looking for this new king of the Jews to worship him. So how's Herod react? Well, verse 3 says he was disturbed. I, I, I think I would use the word threatened. He's worried this baby's going to undermine his position as king. He's saying, hey, I'm the king, and no baby's going to keep me from being the king. So Herod cooks up a lie. Hey, Magi, you, you go find this baby and tell me where he is so I can go worship him too. Yeah, right. After the Magi disregard Herod's instructions, he figures to protect his position, he'll just kill all the babies and that'll eliminate the threat to his throne. Except that God warned Joseph to hide in Egypt and save Jesus from Herod's crime. Now, unlike Jesus... Herod did see his throne and power as something to be held on to and used to his own advantage. Herod wanted to be the one and only king. But guess what, dude? That ship sailed before, before the world even existed. Jesus beat you to it. Which brings me to my last point. Jesus is the king over everyone, even kings. Your position or title doesn't matter. 
Jesus is the king over commoners and rulers alike. In fact, he even has a name written on him that says so. Revelation 19, verse 16, it says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Bet you didn't know Jesus had a tattoo. Listen to me. There's no king that's ever going to trump King Jesus. There's no authority that's ever going to exceed his authority. There's no ruler that will ever overrule his plans or purposes. Herod himself will bow before Jesus. He's the king of every king, every ruler, every leader that ever lived or will ever live. Now, I know it's easy to look at Herod and say he was evil, he was paranoid, he was stupid, whatever. But you know what? We're all like Herod. We want to be the king of our own lives. We don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. We want to do what we want, when we want, and how we want. Admit it. You don't submit your will, your desires, your plans to what Jesus wants for you all the time, do you? I don't, much as I want to or try to. And it isn't here, but someday. Someday, this world will become what it was always intended to be under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. John talks about it in Revelation 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, this world is not yet the kingdom of Christ, right? Right now, today, people ignore Jesus or even actively oppose him. Our culture, our society is becoming more and more hostile to his message. If you're a follower of Jesus, people will call you a hate monger. They'll mock you and slander you. But the day's coming, and John saw it firsthand, when this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it does, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess, just like Paul said it would. Now, we've read a couple of passages this morning that might seem vaguely familiar to you and maybe can't quite place them. Let me read a couple of these verses to you from the King James Version of the Bible, a translation into English that was completed in the year 1611. Revelation 19 and verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Omnipotent means all-powerful. And Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, maybe those verses are familiar to you more because they were used for one of the, basi- the basis of one of the greatest pieces of music of all time, the Hallelujah Chorus. From the Messiah, an oratorio written by George Friedrich Handel. Handel was born in Germany in uh, 1685. He studied in Hamburg and in Italy, and he moved to London in 1712. Over time, he began to achieve some musical success, and by the late 1720s, Handel had become an acclaimed composer in England. A man named Charles Jennings put together the text of the Messiah drawn from Scripture. He sent it to Handel, and he said this in a letter to someone else. He said, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions, as the subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. Jenin's intention wasn't to dramatize the life and teachings of Jesus, 
but more to address who Jesus is. Hanel composed the music for the Messiah in 24 days. Now remember, he didn't have a computer. He had a quill pen and paper. At the end of the original manuscript, he wrote Soli Deo Gloria, which is Latin for to God alone be the glory. Handel intended it as a piece for Easter, but over the intervening centuries, Messiah has traditionally come to be associated with Christmas. It was first performed in Dublin, Ireland on April 13, 1742, and then in London a year later. There was this controversy around Messiah because Handel performed it in concert halls, not in churches. And some people were offended that he would take the sacred message to a secular venue. There's an ancient tradition that's associated with the, the Hallowed Chorus. A story is told that when it was first performed in London, King George II stood. Some say that he had a vision of Jesus Christ himself. See, King George stood, understood that he paled in comparison to King Jesus. In those days, when the king stood, everyone stood. And so to this day, audiences stand when the work is performed. So I want you to consider the truth of Scripture that's being sung as we honor Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Please stand. Now I want you to consider for just a couple of minutes how you're going to respond to what you've heard today. You might be saying, so Jesus is the king, so what? What's that matter to me? Your response to that truth is really the most important choice you'll ever make in this life. You see, friends, there's bad news. The bad news is that all of us have sinned. Sins those things we've, we've done wrong that break God's laws of right and wrong. And God's holy, meaning he's perfect in every way. And God can't tolerate sin, so our sin separates us from God. It means the punishment for our sin is to spend all of eternity in hell. And yes, there is a real, literal, eternal hell, despite the fact that it isn't politically correct to say so. Remember, man wants to hear teaching that justifies his belief, not the truth. This isn't just a little problem that we can solve by being good or working hard. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. You can't die with your fingers crossed hoping that somehow you'll get to heaven. And God doesn't grade on a curve. You can't say, well, I'm better than that guy. The only person God's going to compare you to is Jesus. And every one of us is going to lose out on that comparison every time. Jesus is perfect. We aren't. But friends, I'm also here to tell you today, there's good news. It's the good news that was promised from ancient times that God would send a Messiah to this messed up world to save men. It's, it's the good news that angels announced to shepherds on a lonely hillside that a Savior had been born in Bethlehem the Messiah had finally arrived. It's the good news the Magi received that, that compelled them to travel to find the Christ child and worship him. The good news is called the gospel, and it goes like this. Jesus put aside his kingly nature to come to earth as that baby in Bethlehem to live as a human being just like us. But unlike us, because Jesus was God as well, he lived a perfect human life, one without sin. The authorities and religious leaders at that time, just like Herod, they, they were threatened by Jesus. They didn't want to lose their titles or power. So they unjustly accused him and sentenced Jesus to die on a cross, a brutal, torturous way to die. King Jesus, he could have used his power to opt out of that death sentence. 
but he didn't use his power to his own advantage. He was willingly obedient to the plan of God the Father, death, even death on a cross. He took the judgment we deserved, a perfect, sinless sacrifice, dying in the place of each one of us as our substitute to pay the death sentence for our sins. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, alive again, victorious over death and the cross because he's the one who holds the keys of death and the grave. And he's now in heaven, just as John saw him, ruling and reigning and waiting for the day when his kingdom will be made complete. Jesus made a way for us to avoid separation from God and instead to be with him after we die. A way for us to be subjects of his eternal kingdom, rejoicing and celebrating with the King of kings and Lord of lords forever. And Jesus is a good king, a loving king. You notice how he responded when John fell at his feet? He didn't go, John, bow down before me in all my greatness. No, he had concern for him. He loved him. He reassured him. He said, you don't have to be afraid. I defeated death and the grave on your behalf. But there is a condition. To receive all that Jesus has done for you, you have to believe in him. You have to decide he's your king and let him be on the throne of your heart. Now make no mistake, Jesus is the king of the universe whether you want to believe it or not. But he wants each of us to willingly acknowledge him as our king. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from our sins. Saved from eternity apart from God. If you believe in Jesus and say so, when God looks at you, he sees the spiritual resume of Jesus instead of your own. It's like trading report cards with the smartest kid in class. It's like trading bank accounts with Donald Trump. God looks at you, and instead of seeing all your sin and your mess-ups, he sees the sinless perfection of Jesus. Now you may say, yeah, Pastor Joe, but you don't understand my past. You, you don't know what I've done. Guess what? It doesn't matter. King Jesus will pardon anyone. All you have to do is believe and ask him to be the king of your life. Our prayer partners are going to come right now. They'll be over here on the sides, and they'll be available to pray with you. They're specially trained folks who would love to walk you through believing in Jesus. Now let me talk for a second to those of you who've already invited Jesus to be your king. Let me remind you that the gospel is the power that allows the righteous to live by faith, as Romans chapter 1 says. It just doesn't make you a citizen of the kingdom. It's the power that gives you the faith to believe ongoing. And we're going to need that faith right up until the moment we see Jesus face to face, just like John did. Maybe you have a need today. Maybe you could use some help with your faith. Prayer partners are here for you too. So we're going to worship King Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But first, let me pray. God, we are so grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who turned our bad news into good news, who didn't use his kingly power for his own purposes, but God instead turned it and served us by turning it for us. 
God, for anyone here today who has not invited you to be the king of their life, God, I pray that today would be the day. Gently knock on their heart, God. May they open the door to you now. God, help them to have the boldness to approach one of the prayer partners and receive prayer today. But for all of us, I pray that as we worship now, that we would understand, God, more and more, the gospel is the power that helps us to have faith day after day until the day when your kingdom's complete. I ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and worship.